It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city.org. Good afternoon, KPFK listeners, and to those of you listening to our show on the web. Today is Tuesday, December 20th, 2011. I'm Sarah Harris. We want to thank all of you who donated money to the station during the mini fun drive and to those of you who volunteered on the phones. Today on Here in the City, we're going to pick up our air check series about the ongoing oil extraction operations in South Los Angeles at the Inglewood oil field. Around the United States, technological experiments in oil and gas extraction are raising serious concerns and highlighting competing visions for how health and safety hazards should be addressed. The Inglewood oil field stands out in that it's located in the middle of residential Los Angeles. Nobody likes the ugly blight of an oil field, but for the oil field, there wouldn't be this open space. This is David McNeil, who heads an organization dedicated to creating parkland as the oil operations phase out over the next few decades. We'll hear more from Mr. McNeil in a moment. We'll be right back. really hard for someone to get their their head around what exactly the Inglewood oil field is. This is Paul Ferrazzi. He's a researcher and community activist with the Citizens Coalition for a Safe Community. And he has a vast collection of maps that show the history of oil operations in the Inglewood oil field. And we thought this map would, if it had uh, pushpins in it, people would really see what was there in the oil field. Because, you know, subconsciously, as you're driving by on La Cienega or Stalker or Fairfax, you just sort of filter the whole thing out, you know. You're more or less intent on getting to where you are, and you see a few tanks or oil wells and just keep going. Don't think that much about it. This is David McNeil. He heads the Baldwin Hills Conservancy and has a vision for what this place could be 10, 20, 30 years from now. It's an advocacy situation for open space, developing the Baldwin Hills into what would be a park that's larger than Golden Gate Park, larger than Central Park. Both Ferrazzi and McNeil have extensive knowledge of the potential dangers to public health in the Inglewood oil field, and they're basically at odds about what should be done with the land here right now. Well, it's true. I mean, it's the only operation you can have here that's so sparse, even though it's got ugly impacts. It's so sparse and so 
and it ends somewhat finite. Somewhat. <laughs> it will end at some point. At some point. But if they put, you know, hotels, development, business parks, you know, this is going to come next Fox Hills, that's not going away. So, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag that we're dealing with here. Production slowed down to where Chevron didn't think it was productive enough for them to continue. And uh, planes, exploration, and production is sort of um, specializes in enhanced recovery, where they use water and uh, pressures applied to that water um, f from injection wells to pool oil to their and gas to their uh, producing wells. Um, so they came in and um, slowly but surely uh, production increased and. Um, people were seeing more and more um, sort of structural damage to their homes. Um, foundations cracking, walls cracking, pools, uh, you know, uh, breaking and things like that, which can be uh, correlated to uplift and subsidence. The issue is proving that the uplift and subsidence is being caused by the oil field operations. And now they're they're moving into a, more of a fracking operation on the other side of the hill. Well, yeah, they're doing, you know, they're doing, you know, what is known as fracking. Still, the jury's still out as, as to what kind of fracking they're doing. It's kind of like saying, um, I'm, I'm sautéing. Well, you know, sautéing be a lot of different things, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's really kind of the, the, the fracking word is the lotus term. And, you know, my concern with it is, you know, people look for, simple things and they make them oversimplified and of course it is to the oil company's advantage to keep things complicated because there's trade secrets etc that they don't want to let out but as I understand it from my reading and I'm certainly not an oil expert uh, fracking the one that we see in all the movies and we, we hear about all the time and the ones that people are concerned about is fracking for gas natural gas as opposed to oil and this field is primarily oil with gas as a byproduct so, you know, people say, oh, they're fracking. It's the same thing that's happening in New York or the same thing that's happening in Colorado. Well, you know, I'm not an expert, but it's not the same thing. And people aren't going to be able to light their water coming out of the tap on fire with right. a match. I mean, that's, no one's looking forward to that. And, you know, nobody wants anything to happen in this field. Um, everybody's looking for, you know, the best possible scenario where... Uh, oil users such as ourselves are able to get the resources out of it but you know as those exhaust because they don't replenish themselves um, you know, outdoor enthusiasts will be able to get the benefit of of the land and you know that's the balance that we're trying to to come up with but you know like I said people end up having you know different opinions and different ideas and and you know you can create a threat that's not there or you can discover a threat that is there. I spoke with Gwendolyn Flynn the policy director for the Community Health Councils in South Los Angeles, about an event in 2006 that sparked community concern around the oil field. There was an incident that uh, involved the drilling in which there was a release of some noxious gas in the middle of the night. And it happened to... The, the release of gas was uh, such that it caused some residents, mainly in the Culver City area, to have to voluntarily evacuate their homes um, because it was making them sick. Really? So what, what happened? They smelled something? There or? was some smell that was released with the drilling that had gone on uh, and some gas that had gas pocket that had been hit. Um, and it 
certainly created a flurry of activity after that uh, with people calling on what was going on in the oil field because I think people were under the impression that there wasn't a lot of activity if there was any activity at all. And then for this to happen and discover that indeed there was activity going on and and essentially, you know, it appeared that there, there wasn't a lot of oversight on on what was happening. And so it just it just kind of spiraled into um, a, a bit of a process in which the then supervisor put in place a moratorium on drilling, on uh, new drilling um, for that would, I guess, last for two years and then it would sunset. And then it, at, at that point, uh, there was a hope that there would be some regulatory process put in place that would help to make sure uh, that there was some oversight in the drilling operation. And so that's basically what happened. It was Yvonne Brethwaite-Burke, who was the supervisor. After that toxic release of noxious gases, the community health councils brought a group of residents together to address the public health issues. Paul Ferrazzi and his colleague Gary Gless wound up forming a civic action group that took legal action with other community organizations against the oil company PXP and regulators for masking the dangers of placing public park space next to potentially harmful industrial operations. My co-producer, Tandi Sizwe-Shimorenga, and I went to visit Paul and Gary at Gary's home above the Inglewood oil field. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. This is Here in the City, and I'm Sarah Harris. And I'm here with um, our reporter. Tondesee's Way Shimmeringa. At the home of... Gary Gless. And accompanied by... Paul Ferrazzi. And Gary Gless, you are the lead on the Citizens Coalition for a Safe Community. And before we go anywhere further, I I really wanted to appreciate the amazing space that we're sitting in. Um, This is your residence? Yes. And can you tell me a little bit about this place, your this home and this point uh, in the landscape in the city of Los Angeles? Yeah, it's a rather unique uh, little area. Uh, we're roughly on about a half acre of land here uh, overlooking uh, the, the city, you know, toward uh, Palos Verdes and the ocean. And next door is uh, PXP. But we're looking out, if we look to the south, we're looking toward... Uh, Long Beach and then Palos Verdes Hills. And then a little further uh, southwest, you'd see the LAX airport and then the ocean. So this is um, really, it's a, we're on the top of a hill in Windsor. Windsor Hills. Yeah, we're actually at the very end of a cul-de-sac. And uh, yeah, it's very, uh, 
I kind of like, really like the area. It's very centrally located. And the, with the Citizens Coalition, can you explain why you decided and, or who was involved in starting that? A little bit about the history? Um, well, we actually went to uh, various other organizations in the beginning, and we're trying to find out what was actually happening uh, with the community in regards to the expansion of the oil field. And uh, we felt that a lot of the information wasn't really getting passed to the community. So we more or less formed our, you know, we had a lot of meetings in my home here, uh, with, uh, and we ended up having a lot larger meetings than any of the other organizations had because of the community interest. And in doing so, uh, we decided, you know, we formed a, uh, a nonprofit, the Citizens Coalition for a Safe Community, to um, more or less uh, get more community uh, involvement, you know, that uh, we can go ahead and, and get the information out to the people that really need to, to actually hear about it. So what's the it that we're talking about specifically? What is happening in this community that is such a problem? One of the things, uh, I guess it's on the uh, health aspect, that we have a higher uh, cancer rate. And uh, you know, with lung disease, uh, there's like 600 to 800 times per million uh, of, inf of cancer incidents, where uh, 10 is already uh, a significant amount. And uh, with that, you know, we, we feel that we need extra studies in the community to find out why it's so high. You know, and, uh, and secondarily, um, one of the things that I know a lot of the residents around here are experiencing is a lot more property damage. Uh, we're seeing the streets cracking, and uh, we feel that it's due to the injection of water into the ground. You know, it's a considered water flooding. You said, Gary, that there are two uh, sort of two fronts on which your organization is working right now. Um, there's cancer in the community, and there's also a problem with land use and impact to uh, people's property physically. Yeah, well, we're with our organization. The majority is about the uh, about the health issues, and uh, but on a sub note is you know me personally and the in the residents around here we have the the property damage, and that's another issue that I think we're going to have to uh, move forward on in the future because uh, it's it's actually getting worse, and we actually have uh, imagery from that uh, kind of can show that and uh, and plus with what's happening you know you just have to walk the area and you know that uh, you know we haven't had the earthquakes or the rains anything to, to that would be explained otherwise but the only thing that uh, is happening is you know they're increased uh, increased production yeah that uh, you know we can kind of it we're attributing it to so tell us a little bit about the cancer and what your organization has done, um, what you know, and what you looked for, and what changed once you found some information. Well, uh, actually, uh, we'd actually, for our organization, we did put out a, a survey, uh, an anonymous uh, survey to the community members that showed up at meetings and also through email process. And uh, there was a simple questionnaire uh, about, you know, how. Uh, various different aspects of the, uh, if there's smelling odors, cancer, uh, you know, property damage. And with uh, that, the input that we got, we actually had a, a doctor, uh, Kim Kim Ji, she reviewed the, uh, the, you know, the information 
and found out there was an overwhelming amount of people that smelt the odors from the oil field that also had cancers in their family too. And that we didn't require them to put an address in except for the closest cross streets. Um, we put or mapped those things and, and saw a correlation between odor and, um, um, and cancer. So it, it just seemed sort of a common sense grassroots thing that that's, that's where you saw the cancer as well. I don't know if it's uh, coincidental, but I don't think it is. Okay. Gary, you had mentioned that, you know, when the AQMD may come out to make an assessment when people are noticing that there's odors and they'll look at only 10% of the, um, the, the fittings and junctures and, you know, connections along the, the piping, um, and they've been finding violations or excessive uh, emissions of these uh, what fumes or right well one of our biggest problems is like when we do smell something over here uh, a lot of times it smells like rotten eggs or something like that that would be like the hydrogen sulfide uh, which is more or less a deadly neurotoxin uh, we'd call them the inspectors would come out uh, like I say they they'd only show up with their noses to smell if they smelled something uh, there wouldn't be actually any uh, physical testing of the air of what they you know what they're actually uh, smelling and then uh, it was more or less I've had experiences of where the inspectors would try to uh, point the directions of you know well it's the odors are coming from the airport well as you can see the airport is south of us and uh, you know the wind direction is coming from the west so uh, you know it's more or less you have to force their hand into saying yes we actually smell something we're actually you know it is coming from the oil field to do those type of uh, uh, more testings. Back at the Kenneth Hahn State Recreation Area Mr. McNeil and the Baldwin Hills Conservancy are intent upon gathering more surface rights to extend the park despite the serious reservations voiced by the Citizens Coalition because the oil drilling won't stop and people need parkland. And the biggest goal is to add recreation opportunities where there have not been them before. And if you talk to anybody, it's not you know, rocket science to know that if you create open space and opportunities for people to get out of their houses, exercise, you know, do cardiovascular, do, you know, get the workout in, that obesity rates are going to go down, that, you know, um, heart disease is going to go down, that, you know, that diabetes will be less of a problem. And, and you know, psychologically, you know, the, the outdoor deficit disorder issue uh, wanes um, when you have kids that, you know, get a chance to commune with nature. You know, the problem for me is, you know, people are waiting for something to happen. It's like sitting there waiting for something to happen as opposed to um, saying, okay, we've got this covered, let's do something more productive, you know, than just sitting on the, with the finger on the button. And God forbid, I don't want anything to happen. Nobody wants anything to happen. It's bad for everybody if something happens. But that becomes kind of the, the, the wait and see mode of, you know, once, once you've been violated, you're waiting for the next hit to come. And, and that's the issue we've got. And, you know, like I said, when the release happened, when the release happened, people woke up and they said, well, you, know, you hit our community once, when's the next hit going to happen? It may never happen. Right. You know, there may not be another accident. Um, in terms of the record, uh, once again, uh, I, I believe the air quality here, and, and based on the studies that I've read from AQ&D and, and other wind pattern studies, we've had a lot of odors that come, skunks, the sewers, and the oil field sometimes has methane releases. Uh, all three of those, you know, they're unique to this area. 
all three of those, um, you know, in the dosage that we're getting aren't that much of a problem. On next week's Here in the City, we'll wrap up our series with a look at the toxic impacts and public policy implications of a legal settlement negotiated between the Citizens Coalition, the oil company, and the County of Los Angeles. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. This is Here in the City, and I'm here at the Echo Park Film Center on the occasion of their 10th anniversary with one of the co-founders, Lisa Marr, and I'm wondering what are people doing at this table? Well, today we're having an open house all day and uh, just kind of celebrating handmade film, which is one of the things we really love and have done since the Film Center started 10 years ago. We've known you guys since the beginning of this space, Yes. and I just met two people who walked in off the street and never knew the space was here. So can you give that a little bit of perspective at the corners of Sunset and Alvarado Street in Los Angeles? Like, how can a space like this sort of anchor itself in a community in that way? Well, it is the story of life and art and love coming together. I also walked into this space exactly 10 years ago on opening day just by chance. And that was a moment that changed my life, literally. I had just made my first Super 8 film and, you know, happened to be walking through the neighborhood and Paolo was here, welcomed me in and said, we're opening a film center today. So at that point in my creative life, I had just started making films and so that was exciting to me. At that point in my romantic life, here was the person that would eventually become my soulmate and the person I now work with and am, you know, wonderfully in love with and we travel the world and we do what we love together, both as life partners as uh, and as, you know, partners in this nonprofit. Paolo Davanzo, I'm one of the co-founders and I have the illustrious title of the executive director of the Echo Park Film Center. And you are physically in the back room of the Film Center, which is fun because it's a tiny, tiny space, 900 square feet, but it's a cinema, it's a film school, it's a film co-op. You got Pixel toy cameras, you know, Vidster made by Mattel that was meant for little kids that we make things on. I mean, we're storytellers and we want people to tell their stories. So the medium changes, but the the idea to be loved and nurtured and, and commune with people through history and memories is, is universal. So the technology does change, and we love that. We, you know, we nerd out on some of the new toys, but it's really about the access and providing that access, and that's what we've always done. So, And the Filmmobile, can you tell me a little bit about the Filmmobile? It's a blue, it's a retired Air Force bus, so kind of changing the karma and the energy from um, something that was once a military vehicle. Now it's a communal vehicle, a vehicle celebrating community. So we drive all over. Um, Los Angeles, but all over the United States, and we've actually done tours through Mexico, through Canada. This past summer we did a two-month tour where we did free workshops every day, free screenings every night, 37 different cities all across the United States from rural Louisiana to downtown Detroit. Um, and just the commonality was we were like this itinerant band of gypsies sh showing films and sharing love, 
resurrecting that noble tradition that's been around for since the birth of film, you know, through Mexico and India and other places where these itinerant people would come and, you know, lower screen and show films. But it's also about education, local education. We realized after having the film center for years, a lot of kids they lived in South Central or the Valley. It, they took three or four buses trying to get to the film center and they'd arrived late. So we're like, what if we took everything we had and made it itinerant and we could bring it to a school or an after school program? Or, um, and it was magical. It just freed us up and allowed us to be more nomadic. And I think part of our personal story, Lisa and I falling in love, is we were both nomads to begin with. She was a traveling musician and I was a traveling filmmaker. So we've been able to celebrate a physical space but also remain nomadic. Hello, Davanzo. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> when they've talked about starting tap dance on another day, it's like, I will do the tap dancing. I would like to. I, I For our last segment, arts editor Jesse Lerner has this review of the latest photo show at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Arthur Felig, better known as Ouija, is principally known as a street photographer working on the rougher sides of New York City a cynical, hard-boiled character who slept in his car with his police radio on, frequently beating the cops to the crime scene. His photographs of murder scenes, illuminated by the unforgiving, unflattering light of his flash, are characterized by cynical juxtapositions and a dark humor. I didn't wait till somebody gave me a job or something. I went and created a job for myself, freelance photographer. And what I did anybody else can do. What I did simply was this. I went down to Manhattan Police Headquarters. For two years, I worked without a police car or any kind of credentials. When a story came over the police teletype, I would go to it. If there's a fight between a drunken couple on Third Avenue and Ninth Avenue in Hell's Kitchen, nobody cares. It's just a barroom brawl. But if society has a fight, and the Cadillac on Park Avenue, and their names, they're in the social register. This makes news. But there's another part of Ouija's prolific output, featured in an exhibition that just opened at the Museum of Contemporary Art on Grand Avenue. In 1947, Ouija relocated from New York to Los Angeles, a city that he characterized as Newark, New Jersey, with palm trees. His work took a notable change in direction here, and he turned away from the daily grind of freelancing for newspapers and concentrated instead on distortions and darkroom trickery, work in movies, both Hollywood productions and his own experimental shorts, and longer-term photographic essays. The documentary element of his California work is focused largely not on murders and police work, but rather a jaded take on the film industry and the celebrity worship that it perpetuates. These are deeply cynical works, featuring starstruck autograph seekers and beauty pageant hopefuls, chimpanzees eating at trendy Los Angeles restaurants, and fans bidding on a movie star's discarded pantyhose. But this part of his career has long been overshadowed by his New York work. In fact, the 1997 exhibition at New York's International Center for Photography virtually ignored the distortions in the Hollywood work in order to present Ouija strictly as a documentary street photographer. Rather than trying to clean up Ouija in order to find a place for him in the canon of great photographers, the Mocha Show celebrates his lowbrow credentials, giving ample attention to the tabloid men's magazines and the softcore pulp periodicals in which Ouija published this work. 
There are also film clips showing the bit parts and cameos he performed in Hollywood films and the kaleidoscopic, kaleidoscopic tricks that he created. Plenty of outrageous distortions made with his so-called elastic lens in a reconstruction of a 1949 group show at the Framark Gallery on Melrose, his first commercial exhibition. Naked Hollywood, on view at MOCA until February 27th, is a thoroughly researched and important corrective filled with laugh-out-loud photographs that reveal another side of this brilliant artist. And that's it for Here in the City today. Special thanks to Jesse Lerner, Luis Sierra Campos, Tandisizwe Shimurenga, Daniela Gerson, Sabiha Khan, Albert Chacon, Rachel Salmon, Will Coley, Holly Harper, Karen Ness, and to you, our listeners. We will be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Until then, you can find us on the web at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.